I'm going to have you turn to uh, the first book in the New Testament, the book called the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to turn to chapter 9. Some of you may be acquainted with a man by the name of Chuck Colson. Has anybody heard this name before, Chuck Colson? Chuck Colson was actually one of the top aides during the Richard Nixon administration in the United States and very famous for an event that probably had an amazing impact on American politics. It was an event called Watergate. Watergate was a break-in, a tap-in, you know, there was... uh, improprieties, it cost President Nixon his presidency, and Chuck Colson actually was involved in it and ended up in prison as a result of it. And through this whole experience, he was a high-powered individual, had served in the military, was a lawyer, very well-educated man, and out of this broken experience going through prison, being humbled, He eventually read the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis and he gave his life to Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And his total life was changed after that. And he developed a ministry of deep compassion for people in prison and started a ministry called Prison Fellowship. This ministry began to, you know, transcend the United States, was around the world, and pretty soon he was traveling internationally. And now Chuck Colson has since gone to be with Christ, but he shares about a time that he was in Jakarta, Indonesia. And some of you have had this experience. If you've traveled overseas, you know what it's like trying to connect with connections, long lines, steamy uh, situations, especially in warm climates and where maybe air conditioning isn't functioning the way it should. And he said in his book, Being the Body, he said, with passport in my sticky hand, I was exhausted and exasperated at the long, inefficient line snaking ahead of us. I was concerned that we would miss our next flight and therefore people that would be awaiting us at the other end would miss us. But I was also determined not to allow my frustration to overcome me and I decided to just make the best of the situation so I continued to laugh and joke and visit with those that were traveling with me. Two years later, he received a letter from a businessman living in Singapore. The man had been a follower of the teachings of Confucius, but he had sent his children to a Presbyterian Sunday school so that they would gain some sort of moral training. He said one Sunday as he was picking up his children, he happened to come a little early and heard the very end of the sermon. A visiting missionary had held up a copy of Chuck Colson's first book entitled Born Again, published probably in 1975. And on the cover was a picture of Chuck Colson. Now, how many know, he's kinda, he kind of stands out. I mean, if you see him once, you probably recognize him again. Anyways, this man was in the same line as Chuck Colson. And turned, and there was the man he had seen in the cover of the book. He noticed that he was, uh, had a very calm demeanor. It was very cheerful. And so he was touched by that. And when he returned back home to Singapore, he bought the book Born Again. How many have actually read the book by Chuck Colson, Born Again? Any of you? Okay, well, a few of you. Okay, I have as well. It's really the story of how Chuck Colson came to faith in Christ. And so as the man is reading the book, he himself makes the same commitment to Christ. The point is simply this. We never know who is watching our lives. We never know the kind of impact and influence we're going to have on other people. We just never know what God is going to use and do in and through our lives. Some of you probably know who David Robinson is. He's an NBA player, probably retired now, all-star, probably going to be in the NBA Hall of Fame. 
David Robinson is a Christian, and he says something very interesting. He said, the goal of our lives is not our glory. Now, you can imagine, here's a very prominent, you know, player in the NB. He says, it's not about us, really. He goes on to say, trying to make life all about us pushes happiness further out of our reach. Now, I think that's a very important point. I'm going to come back to that. He said, our society's not wired for this kind of thinking, because it's a me-centric world, and it destroys much of what could be good in our lives. Marriages many times are ruined because one or both partners are focused on their own happiness at the expense of the other. Successful men and women are ruined many times by their own success because they believe they don't need anyone's input, especially God's. And for some, life's troubles are magnified because they believe that life is all about them. Now, it's interesting, during this Christmas break, I happened to read a theology book. Nothing new, I'm working on my next course, and so I got the books ahead of time, and I'm reading, and sometimes you're plowing through theology books, but I was reading a book by Jose Morales, and he said something very insightful, and it ties in to what David Robinson said, and he says this, God has chosen to create the universe in order that his perfections be known and loved, that is, for his eternal glory. In other words, what does it really mean to live for the glory of God? What it really means to discover who God is in all of his wonderfulness, all of his beauty, all of his kindness, all of his goodness, that you and I would experience it, would discover it. And not only that, he goes on to say this, and this is the part I like, the happiness of created beings is closely linked to the glory of God because to the degree that man glorifies God, his merits and happiness increase. Isn't that interesting? What is he basically saying? Well, uh, he's basically saying that you and I can only be truly happy when we live to glorify God. Now, I want to think about that for a moment. I am so convinced that when God designed us, He designed us with a desire to be happy. How many here, you want to be happy? You know, if I say to you, I'm wishing you a happy new year, why am I saying this? I mean, we say that to each other. I mean, it becomes a cultural thing, right? But let's let's unpack that for a minute. What am I trying to say to you? I'm, I'm hoping that you will experience true happiness this coming year. And I know that the only way that you and I can experience true happiness is if we don't live strictly for ourselves. It's not just about us. That you and I can move beyond our own interests and extend ourselves into the interests of others, and especially to what God is interested in. That when you and I start to live for someone beyond ourselves, then we actually get delivered from our greatest problem, ourselves. And we can actually begin to experience true joy. Do you know, it's so fascinating to me when people say to me things like, do you know, pastor, I believe God wants me to be happy. And I go, you're absolutely right. God does want us to be happy. He even designed us to desire happiness. The only problem is what we think is gonna make us happy And what really makes us happy many times are two different things. See, we think what's going to make us happy many times are sinful activities. And so we pursue that sinful activity to make us happy. And what do we discover at the end? We're full of pain. 
and full of sorrow and full of disappointment because what we thought would make us happy doesn't make us happy. And so today I want to talk about what really will make us happy ultimately. And I've already suggested it, that we live to bring glory to God. So the question then needs to be asked, what really brings glory to God? What will help us have a, a, a life-defining goal, direction, or purpose to our lives that will really make us extremely happy? How many want to kind of discover this? How many here say, Pastor, I'm up to being happy? Anybody want a 2015 full of happiness? How many here are saying, I'm ready to be happy in 2015? Anybody, any, any volunteers to be happy? I got your interest this morning. That's so good. I'm so glad. But how many already know it's not going to be exactly what you think? How many are getting that idea already? It's, I'm already setting you up, aren't I? Because I'm suggesting to you that it's not necessarily what we think, but what will bring honor and glory to God. Let me tell you what I think God has, has done in our lives. First of all, when God comes to us, he calls us. And then the story of the 12 disciples, we have this picture, and I'll give you a few of them, where Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee. And he comes along and he sees Peter and his brother Andrew, and they're fishing. And next to them in the boat, not too far away, is their friends James and John. And they're fishermen. And Jesus comes up to them, and what does he say to these guys? He says, come, follow me. Doesn't he say that? That is a call to disciple, to be a disciple, right? How many see that? A disciple means to be a follower. He's calling them to be a follower of Christ. And you know, God is calling us all through the city of Red. He's calling every single person to be a disciple of Christ. He's calling all of us to be followers of him. But listen to what he also says in the same breath. He said, come follow me and I will do what? I will make you fishers, not a fish. Isn't it great how Jesus can use the metaphors and the analogies? He goes, no, no, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. So in that same breath that he's calling these men to become disciples or followers of him, he's also calling them to be a disciple maker. And I'm going to suggest to you guys very strongly that when God calls us to himself and he calls you to be a disciple, he also calls you to be a disciple maker. You say, how do you, how do you prove that, Pastor? Well, look at the end of the book of Matthew when Matthew says, now I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of all ethnic groups, of all peoples. I want you to go. That's the mandate of the church, that we are to go and make disciples. And so the fact that you and I have heard the call, and you and I have responded to the call to be a follower of Christ means that you and I, at the same moment, are being called to be a disciple maker. Wow. But what does that mean, Pastor? How in the world am I going to be a fisher of men? Well, that's what I want to talk about today. I want to help you become the most effective disciple makers. And I believe as you and I begin to follow Christ and we follow him in this disciple making purpose, that we will actually experience a level of joy and happiness we've never known before. One of the greatest joys in the world is actually sitting down and sharing the gospel with somebody and actually leading them to Christ. There's no greater joy than that. I'll tell you that. 
There is such a joy in doing that. You'll sense God's presence in a very unusual way. It'll be almost like you're getting saved again because they're experiencing that conversion experience and you're there in the process witnessing this miracle. And it's an amazing miracle because it's an eternal miracle. That person's life is not just being changed by, for what's going to happen in this life, which it will, but it's going to be changed for all of eternity. That's a very powerful thing. So let's take a look at the four elements that I want to look at today in helping us understand what does it mean to be a disciple maker. And, uh, and the first one is simply that it comes from a life in, in communion with the Father. It always begins with prayer. As a matter of fact, everything, is, everything that's happening in our lives, God's initiating. Human beings are responders. God's the initiator. Even when we think we're pursuing God, God has first pursued us. Even when we think we're loving God, God first loved us. God's always initiating, rather we know it or not. Many times we don't see it. We cannot make disciples apart from God's help. I love what John says in John 15. He says, without me you can do nothing. And especially something as profoundly eternal and spiritual and miraculous as seeing people come into God's kingdom. You can't do this without God. That's why for over 20 years I've met with men before the services. We've prayed. We've asked God, Lord, you know, draw people. Bring them to our church family. Help them come and connect with you. Help them to experience and encounter you, the true and the living God. And it's amazing how many times people have said, Pastor, I don't even know why I came here. I just felt I needed to be here. And I'm going, That's, isn't that awesome that we're praying this prayer and they're verbalizing exactly what we're praying. How many know prayer is powerful? And I'm convinced that we really don't pray enough. That we really are not convinced that God answers prayer. We're not really, you know, if we really believe God answered prayer, I think we'd pray more. Don't you think that's true? Can I just share, you know, I'll just share a little bit about myself. I don't normally do that, but I'll just tell you what what I try to, I'm, I'm a believer. And what I mean by that is, I believe that God can do what I ask him to do. And I believe that when you're a person that's pursuing God, that you have, you know, you're concerned about the things that God's concerned about, God starts working inside of your heart and puts things inside of your soul to pray for. Let me give you an example. Four weeks ago, I didn't say anything to the church. I just said, you know, Lord, uh, here's what I like to see you do. I'd like to see you pay off the land indebtedness. Okay. That would have been another, that means we have to give 60000 to pay off the land indebtedness in four weeks. So I get this email from our bookkeeper on December 31st. Pastor, we, all that's outstanding on the land debt is $365.14. Oh, praise God. I said, that's good. Now, so that's great. But how many know that that could affect your operating budget? And I knew that we needed to have over 200000 to hit our operating budget. I never said anything to you guys. I just talked to my father in heaven. I said, Lord, not only do we, I want you, I can show this in my journal. It's dated. I prayed for 60000 for the land fund, and I prayed for 200000 in the operating. You know what God did? He gave us over 200000 in operating. We more than exceeded our budget. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, Amen. Great, thank you. That's your generosity. God must have been speaking to some of you. See? You know, why don't we have more confidence in God? You know what my prayer this year is? Listen to this one. You're gonna say, Pastor, you're getting more radical all the time. You know? I've been a pastor for almost 33 years. Next month, it'll be 33 years. So I know what I said. Lord, 
I've seen many people give their hearts to Christ in 33 years of ministry. Now my prayer is in 2015 that I will see in this year as many people saved as I've seen in 33 years of ministry. That's my prayer. Why not? Why can't I pray that? You know what? I believe God's going to do it. Amen. You can say, why do you believe this, Pastor? Because I'm watching right now God do something. I believe we're in a season of people coming to Christ. And it's very important as a church family that we respond in a right way. We're ready for this. That we're, we're not just sitting here idly by. You know, one of the things that happens in Christianity is two extremes. The one extreme is we, we make all this effort and energy on our side. And we're not really praying and trusting God. On the other side, we just pray and we become very passive. We don't do anything. I believe those are both extremes in the Christian life. What we need to be doing is praying and working. Praying and making an effort doing our part. And so we're going to do our part this year. And you can see that from that campaign that we're looking at doing. Now, let's turn in our Bibles here to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35. And I want to show you here how Jesus approaches people. Because if we're going to be like Jesus, if we're going to be followers of Christ, if we're going to be disciples and disciple makers, then I think we need to learn from the master discipler. The master disciple maker. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 9 verse 35. Jesus went out through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Now when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. What is Jesus teaching us here about um, the harvest? That's the analogy he's using. Well, first of all, he starts out by saying we have to begin by praying. Notice what he says. The harvest field is ready to be harvested. There is a problem, though. What's the problem? What's the problem? No workers. And so I am convinced that for 2,000 years, there have been many people ready to respond to Christ, but the church has become distracted by all kinds of things. They get distracted by, the, we get, in our personal lives, don't we get distracted by our personal agendas, our own personal problems, our own decisions to acquire, do this vacation, do that thing. And before you know it, the whole year is burnt up, and you know it's all been about us. And you know, at the end of the year, we're dissatisfied with our lives. We've looked at what we've accomplished, and we're a little bit blue, you know? And so we come up to a brand new year, and we say, you know, I'm going to do a little better next year. Now, I'll tell you right now, I'm not against vacations. I'm not against buying things. I'm not against, you know, having to address problems. I think those are all part of life. But when you don't have a purpose-driven life, when you don't have a focus you're either living life by crisis management or you're living life by objective. And folks, I'm going to just say this. I've, I've met a lot of people. Their lives are just crisis management living. They go from one crisis to the next. You know how I know this? Because I grew up in a home like that. It was just crisis management. It was just one crisis after another. And I came to a deep conclusion. You'll always have trouble and problems. So you know, to, you know don't let those things define your life. 
What we need to have is a compelling purpose that transcends our life. We need to have a purpose that actually gets us up in the morning and we got something to live for and we don't allow the, the problems and the challenges of life to define who we are because we're focused on the goal of doing what God has called us to do. That we're a follower of Christ and we're going to go out there and make disciples. And, you know, this is not just a pastor's calling. It's not just, you know, the staff's calling. It's every believer's calling. Remember, I pointed out to you, when we hear the call to follow, it's also a call to be a fisher of men, to make disciples. Now, you know, we start with prayer. Why do we have prayer and fasting in this church? Why, why are we starting our year with this focus? Because we know that we are going to be ineffective without God's spirit working in people's lives. We cannot save a single person. That's God's job. I, I don't have that authority or power. We have the ability to communicate a message and God does the work of convincing people and persuading people. God does that work. Our job is to communicate his message. That's it. Our job is to, you know, to express and partner with God in bringing this life-saving message to a world that's struggling. Now, let me show you the second thing that I notice. Wow. Uh, when God sees people, because Christ is God in the flesh, he sees their needs and compassion is one of the ingredients that motivates him to action. Read the Gospels very carefully. Every time I see Jesus doing something, so often I read, and Jesus moved with compassion, he healed. Moved with compassion, he fed the hungry. Moved with compassion, he taught. Jesus sees people in a certain light, and because he sees them that way, he's motivated out of compassion. How many know that people are going to be more prone to listen to what you have to say if you're a compassionate person? How many know people are going to be more interested in what you're saying if they see compassion expressed and believe that what you're, you're saying, you know, if you say you care about somebody, you have to demonstrate it. You can't just verbalize it. You have to demonstrate it. And, you know, I think our church family is collectively does demonstrate. I got a beautiful letter from one of our missionaries uh, in India, Dr. Thomas. You know what he wrote? He said, your church family, Paul, has gone the second mile, the third mile. You know, you know we built an orphanage in India, right? And do you know that we're supporting all of these orphans in India? Our church does that. Every month we're supporting almost 70 orphans. And how many know that, you know, you didn't know this, but in December, our missions committee said we're going to send extra money in December so that they can celebrate Christmas and have the resources to be able to give gifts to all of the Bible college students and all of the orphans. That's 250 people. And we did it. You know, that's, that's compassion. So when you're giving to the church, it's not just giving, you know, to, you know, our, our salaries of staff, which you do do that. It's not only lighting the building, but we're helping people in our city, even the homeless in our city, by the way, we support and help through other agencies. We don't take credit for it, but we do it. We help financially support a lot of these ministries, and you need to be aware of that. When God sees need, he's moved with compassion. Notice what it says in Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Why? This is how God sees people. And I believe to be an effective disciple maker, we need to begin to see things as God sees things. How does he see people? He saw them as helpless and harassed without a shepherd, without leadership. 
He saw this aimlessness about their lives. He saw them as being purposeless. He saw their lives as being far more broken. And I'm going to suggest a thought to us today that when we look at our own city, what do we normally see? We see a very affluent community. Most people have the things they need to function economically. But I'm going to say to you that a lot of people behind the veneer of nice homes... There's a lot of addictive issues. There's a lot of emotional abuse going on. There's a lot of unhappiness. There's a lot of lack of skill in, you know, maybe even parenting children correctly. Am I saying the truth? And there's a lot of people in despair. And there's a lot of people, you know, wondering, you know, what to do with their lives. And there's people frustrated, you know. There's, there's relational tensions and problems. I could go on and on and talk about all kinds of issues and so I think we've got to stop seeing people as, well, if they've got clothes on their back and food to eat, then their needs are met. No, Jesus doesn't see them that way. He sees people hurting. He sees people, you know, unhappy. He sees people in despair. He sees people battling distress and doubt and all kinds of issues. And when we start to see people as Christ sees people, then I think we're going to have a greater impact on people. See... I, I am convinced that people without God have no hope. You say, how are you convinced of that, Pastor? Because Ephesians tells me that. He says, he describes the condition of the Gentiles before Christ as having without God and without hope in this world. That's why I think this message that we're going to send is going to be very powerful. People are looking for hope today. And I'm convinced that when they come here, they hear a message of hope. Yeah, sometimes they hear things they don't want to hear. Sometimes you hear things you don't want to hear. But ultimately, you know it's the truth, and you know it's going to bring ultimate hope. And that's what's the most important thing. So we need to see people the way God sees them. Then I think we need to understand that people are more uh, responsive than we believe. You know, some of us have had experience where we've talked to somebody and they're non-responsive. We'll get back to those in a minute. But you know, there's a lot of other people that are responsive. And we need to talk to them. We need to focus on responsive people. Jesus certainly did. Jesus said the harvest is great and the laborers are few. Do we believe that that's true or not? Is Jesus speaking the truth? Is Jesus Christ the truth? If he says this is the condition of humanity, then we need to believe it. So we need to start acting on what Christ says. So we, we got to stop you know, walking around saying people aren't interested in the gospel. I think they are interested. We need to begin to dialogue and communicate in such a way that people will listen. We need to, first of all, listen to where people are coming from and then dialogue with people. That's all. You'll find out people are responsive. People are interested. Sometimes they're just not interested in being preached at. Right? Yeah, but you can, you, can, you can ask questions. You can start asking what's going on in their life. And if you're a compassionate, caring person, I'm going to tell you something. They're going to tell you their story. They've got all kinds of issues. And you'll have an opportunity to say, hey, why not, let's just stop here. Can we pray about this? And, and you're going to have opportunity to minister to people. And I think we need to learn how to do that. You know, C.S. Lewis says, you know, this way. He said, the glory of God and as our only means to glorify him, the salvation of human souls is the real business of life. How many have ever read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis? You've actually read this book. Any of you? Okay. You know, I am so convinced that this life is really about two realms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And that right now, there's a huge battlefield for the souls of men. 
I am so convinced of that. And that's what, it, that's what this life is all about. And the great tragedy is some of us are so distracted with the temporal life, we cannot understand what's really going on in the eternal world, in the spiritual realities, and what's going to happen ultimately. We're not dealing with the right, we have the wrong focus. And we need to shift our thinking. And if we want to really have a life worth living, we need to move to a different way of thinking in 2015. Otherwise, we're going to end up in the same place at the end of 2014 than when we started. If we don't, we're not careful. We're going to let this world shape our thinking. We're going to let this life shape how we're going to live out our lives. And I believe God's calling us to more than that. Let me move to the second element. It's simply this. It must flow from a response to God's call. And I've already told you this. The call of God extends beyond the call to being a believer, to being a disciple maker. And I've already pointed out these two verses from Matthew. But I want to just focus on verse 20 for a minute. Not only does he call us to be a maker, you know, Jesus said, you know, uh, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The very next verse says that once they left their nets and they followed him. Now think about that statement for a minute. What does that really mean and how does that apply to us? Well, they were willing to give up something to follow Jesus. I want to stop and ask the question, what are you willing to give up? Well, I would suggest that you and I need to give up certain things. First of all, I think we need to give up sinful activities, sinful associations that influence in continuing in a sinful lifestyle. Even sinful means of making a living. I'm not saying fishing was a sinful means, but these guys felt a higher calling. We're even willing to give up a legitimate means of making a living in order to, you know, become ministers of the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that God's calling us all to be pastors or evangelists or missionaries. I'm not suggesting that. But what I am suggesting this is simply that we have to free ourselves up from a lot of encumbrances that we've allowed to come into our lives and we've gotten ourselves so busy with the things of this life that we have no time for the things above. That's what I think the point is. That's how it can be applied into 21st century Canada. You know, what am I engaged in that's consuming so much of my time that reality is it would not make any sort of eternal difference if I didn't do this? And I need to sit down and evaluate how I'm spending my time. I need to evaluate, you know, what are my priorities in life? This would be a good thing to do right at the beginning of this year and say, hey, what am I doing with my time? And I'm going to tell you a little secret. You could probably do a lot more with your time and a lot more viable things with your time. I think you could actually, you know, develop more in your life. You can grow more as a person. I think you could become more effective in relating to other people. Those are all decisions that we get to make. And God's letting us have the choice to make these decisions. He's not going to make them for you. You know, you have to make those choices. You know, I could work in children's ministry, or I could come and help here in the summer when they're going to do that outreach to children. I could serve for that week. I'm going to block it off now in January so I have the time in July. You know, we could plan for some of these things. I've learned one thing about life. We all do what we want to do. And so all the t when people tell me I don't have time for this, all you're telling me is you have a different priority. And I'm challenging you this morning. Look at your priority list very carefully. And you have to decide what is the most important thing on your list. And for me, I'll just tell you, for me, it's serving Christ. I don't want to waste time. 
I want to utilize and maximize my time. I want to have a greater impact and a greater influence this year than I've ever had before. I want to see more people come into God's kingdom. So, yeah, I can start that prayer, but then God's going to say, well, then what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do differently to make things different? I think also uh, we need to realize inherent in the call is an authority to accomplish the task. Isn't that great? That God doesn't just ask us to do something. He gives us the abilities or the authority to do it. Look at chapter 10 and verse 1. He called his 12 disciples to him and he gave them authority. And what, you know, this is not just, you know, a position. He gave them authority to do something. He gave them a power to do something, it says, to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. That's pretty powerful. How many think that's amazing that God's given us this kind of authority? You know, we have authority over the kingdom of darkness. How many here realize that when you're, you know, there's only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of darkness, there's the kingdom of God. When you and I become a believer, we're taken out of the kingdom of darkness and we're brought into the kingdom of God. And this kingdom has authority over that kingdom. And every member in this kingdom has greater authority than that kingdom. That's powerful. And you know, we walk around, you know, fearful of what the enemy's gonna do. Listen, the devil is afraid of God. Anybody know that? And where is God living today? In us. So guess what? He's worried. And the only way he can make us fearful is if we don't know who we are in Christ and we don't understand our authority. You know, we have authority to, you know, cast out evil spirits. We have authority to pray for the sick. And we should be doing that. It says, you know, these signs shall follow those that believe. And they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Why do you think we're laying hands up front here on people and praying for them? They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. We've had wonderful answers to prayer. Do you know how many cancer cases in this church God has healed in answer to prayer? Quite a few. Quite a few, my friends. That's amazing. And just last year, Patty and I were having uh, dinner with a young family, and the young wife said for 10 years that we were praying, and she came forward for prayer in our church. And I'm not just saying it's our church. I'm just saying she was praying, and God heard her cry. And you know what's amazing with the story? The one surgeon opened her up, said, I can't do this operation. It's too complex. Too much is going on here. Sewed her back up, sent her to a specialist. He went through all the records from her past, opened her up, and you know what? There was nothing. You know what he said to her? I've seen all of the stuff. He goes, the only way I can describe this, it's a miracle. He said it. It's a documented miracle. Yes. Yes, amen. Now, I can't sit down and say, oh, I'm going to guarantee that everybody we pray for is going to get better. I'll just say this. What's the worst possible scenario for a child of God? What's the worst possible scenario? We pray for you and you don't get better and you go to be with Jesus. That's terrible. <laughs> you know, but we don't think that way, do we? We all want to be healed on this planet. We all want more time. You know, if we knew what heaven was like, I think we'd be more eager to leave. <laughs> you know, 
But I don't know if we really believe it sometimes. You see, that we're kind of funny that way. Let me go on and read here. It says, they raise the dead, they cleanse those who have leprosy, they drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. And you say, well, this is only for the 12. Let me point out to you, read the book of Acts, a whole bunch of other people were doing the same miracles, and they weren't just the 12. That's the end of that argument. Let me move on to the third point. You know, that God provides for disciple makers. You know, if we're about the Father's business and he's asking us to do something, he's going to provide the resources. Look at verse 9 of chapter 10. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or any extra tunic or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. And as you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. You know, they were sent out. They were sent out by God and God said, listen, wherever you go, I'll make a provision for you. Why do we get so hung hung up about provisions? If we are about our father's business, he will provide. If we're in the Father's will and he's asking us to do something, it'll get done. You know, it was fun. It's been fun being a pastor all these years. You know, it's been fun. I'll tell you what it was like when I had six people. This church, had, you know, we, were, we met in my living room when we started. Six adults, Patty and I. We put Andrea to bed because she was two weeks old. You know, that was it. And then we, on Friday nights, we had about three teenagers, and they invited their friends over to our house, and we had youth in the basement. Yeah, that's how we started. But you know, eventually a day came when we started renting other facilities, and the church began to grow, and I said, Lord, we really do need a facility. And we prayed, and you know, as a young pastor, I just prayed. I said, Lord, I believe you want to give us 10 acres of land. I'm going to believe for 10 acres of land in a major part of the city where there's two arteries uniting. Guess where we are? We're exactly where we prayed for, and God provided. You know, you're sitting in a miracle. You know, you're sitting in answer to prayer. Isn't that fun? Isn't that neat when we can pray? Then, you know, lately I've been praying. I said, Lord, you know, our church is growing. We need more property. And we bought 133 acres. Now, I would have been satisfied with 30, but you know, God's got a big plan. Don't you guys? I said, God, your vision is bigger than my vision. Isn't that great? Don't you think we want to shrink God down to our size? Sure we do. But I'm saying let's trust God. Let's go for it. And we have. And it's exciting. And God will provide. Let me move on to the the last point. This is the one I think where we have the biggest problem. Because we all have this experience. One of the reasons why we don't always engage in sharing our faith is we run into some hostility or opposition. Isn't that the truth? How many here you became a Christian as an adult? Raise your hand. Okay, how many here, when you, when you became a Christian, you were so excited about Jesus and the joy and the peace and the transformation in your life. What, what did you do? You did, you know, people, you know, you told people. How many told people? You just couldn't help yourself. But what happens is you're telling people, all of a sudden you run into people that are not interested. And they kind of, like a cold glass of water, you can't figure it out. This is the greatest thing in the world. What's wrong with you guys? There's nothing greater than this, than to know Jesus Christ. And so you're telling people with enthusiasm, and then you get this cold water in your face. You know, not everybody's as excited as you are, right? right. This is better than any product you've ever discovered. 
This is better than any service you've ever found. This is the most amazing thing that someone can love me this much, that I could have eternal life, that you know my whole direction in life can be transformed, to be forgiven of my sins, to have a new beginning. Man, these are all exciting things. Man, I'm so excited about being a follower of Jesus. And then I have problems. Why am I having a problem? Well, because there's a kingdom of darkness. And remember, we came out of the kingdom of darkness and now we're trying to reach back in and bring some more people out of the kingdom of darkness. And so, you know, what's the proper reaction to hostility? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked that. Look at verse 14. He says, If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your word, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that town, home or town. I'll tell you the truth, it'll be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment for that town. Wow. What is he saying? When you run into hostility and you run into unresponsive people, move on. Move on. Go back to what Jesus said. Remember what he said? The, 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 what it, the harvest is what? There's a lot of receptive people, Jesus said. You just ran into an unreceptive person. So now, think of it this way. If you were a farmer and you had many fields, and one of the fields was ripe and ready to be harvested, and another field wasn't quite ready, where are you going to put your combine? I hope so, because if you put it in the unripe field, you're going to have problems. Your combine's going to get gooped up and messed up, and you're going to ruin that crop, right? It's just not ready to be combined. It's just not ready yet. It's unresponsive. So what should we be doing in an with an unresponsive response? Yeah, pray for them and move on. Now, I'm going to just say something to all of us parents. What do we tend to do when our kids are not responding to the gospel? We tend to nag them. We tend to harp on them. That's very alienating. If you've told them once, you've told them a couple of times, if they're not responding, what should you do? Pray for them. Move to a responsive person. With the gospel. I'm not saying abandon your kids. I'm saying still love them. Somebody took that and said, Pastor, you almost sound like you're telling us abandon our kids. I said, no, 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 no. Don't abandon your kids. But don't keep harping on them. Move your direction to the responsive heart. And you may end up parenting, spiritually parenting and discipling someone else. Isn't that awesome? You can have spiritual kids. Isn't that true? Sure you can. We must endure rejection, continuing to be wise and gracious towards others. Look at verse 16. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. In other words, we just need to be gracious to people. Okay, this person's not ready yet. Okay, hit the button. You know, when people get really upset about us sharing the gospel, I go, that's a good sign. That's better than indifference. That means they're understanding something. I'll just tell you, when I'm preaching, I'd rather have you mad or glad than indifferent. If you're mad, that means you're thinking about it, right? It's good if you're glad, but if you're mad, that's not bad. See, we keep thinking that's bad. I'm going, no, that's good. They're getting it. There's a reaction, right? Right? Sure. It's the indifferent people I worry about. It's like, did you guys understand this? Are you getting this? You follow what I'm saying? What about in times of persecution? Oh, let me move on. We have to be warned. Let me, let me say this first. We, we have to be on our guard. We, we, need, we need to realize that sometimes 
Persecution can come from religious institutions, government agencies, and even from family. And I think it's very fascinating that the three agencies, the institutions created by God for our good, for humanity's good, can actually become so distorted to be a source of pain rather than a, a blessing in our lives. Look at verse 17. He says, be on your guard against men. They're going to hand you over to the local council and flog you in their synagogues. That's their churches. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witness to them and to the Gentiles. Brother will betray brother, verse 21, to death, and a father his child. And children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Boy, this doesn't sound very promising, does it? Do we read the Bible, by the way? What is Jesus telling us? This is dangerous stuff. This is dangerous stuff, guys. Do you know what I think the big problem is? Here's what I think. Jesus says, I want you to go fishing. What's the first thought that comes to your mind? Oh, I'll grab my pole and reel and I'll go fishing. Now, wrong imagery. That's an independent thinking. We're going to do this together. So what are we on? We're on the fishing boat. Now, how many know that if you're going up to Alaska to fish, or if you're going up in the Atlantic to fish, how many know fishing is one of the most dangerous industries in the world? Does anybody know that? That is one of the most dangerous industries in the world, fishing. You know what Christians think the church is? The cruise liner. They think this is the carnival, cruise. They're looking for the smorg, the entertainment, and where's the deck chair, and which spots are we stopping to sightsee? That's, that's how we think as Christians in North America. We're all consumers. We're walking around going, well, what program does your church offer? What do you do for this? I'm going, folks, I just want to give you a wake-up call. This is not a cruise liner. This is a fishing vessel. And how many know when you're on a fishing vessel, it's dangerous work? And number two, it can smell sometimes. <laughs> you know, on a cruise liner, if it's fishy, if it smells fishy, everyone's complaining. What's that stink? But if you're working on a fishing vessel, you want to smell the smell of fish. Not decomposing fish, but you know what I mean. Do you follow what I'm saying? And how many know that when you're working with people, it gets messy? How many know that when you're a parent, it gets messy? How many parents can honestly say it's messy parenting? Anybody experience parenting is messy business? Okay, being in church life is messy business. Why is that? Because we got people. People do and say and do all kinds of crazy things. Right? Okay, so you're on a fishing vessel now. We're going out to fish, and it's a dangerous business. What do you mean it's a dangerous business, Pastor? Well, look at verse 34. Do you suppose that I've come to bring peace on the earth? I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Whoever, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a little stipulation. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying... If you really want to be my disciple, you have to love me above everyone else. Isn't that what he's saying? Okay, now, I'm going to say this to you. He even goes on to say, anyone that does not hate his wife. Now, is the Bible contradicting itself? No. Because what Jesus is using is an expression of speech. Hate means to love less, to love less than. He's giving us a picture of priority. He's suggesting to us, not suggesting, he's telling us. He's saying we have to love God above everyone. 
And I'm going to say to you that when you put God first in your life and you love God above every other person, you're going to love your wife better. You're going to love your children more. You're going to love your neighbor more. As a matter of fact, the end result of faith is love. And if you and I are not coming to that end result and we're loving at a deeper level, then we're probably not a follower of Jesus. How's that? See, you've got to understand this stuff. But why is Jesus telling us this? Because he knows that in this world there's going to be such a tremendous conflict that even the enemies that rise up against you will come from your own family members. You know, sometimes they'll think you're a little extreme. Sometimes they'll think you're a fanatic, you're radical, you're too far out there. And all you're doing is loving God. You're saying, hey, I'm just loving God. But it's too much for some people. You say, you know, you can have a little bit of religion, but too much is too much. You know, people freak out. But I'll tell you something. If you really love God, you're going to have an impact in people's lives. Someone may wonder, why is there persecution? Why is there opposition? Well, because there's a spirit at work in the hearts of those who are disobedient. And they'll persecute that which is, that is righteous. But how, do we, how should we handle persecution then? Well, Jesus basically explains to his disciples, he says, don't be afraid of people. Isn't that a great advice? Don't be afraid of people. Oswald's Chambers said it this way, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. You know, my prayer is that we'll become fearless. We'll have no fear. We'll be just doing what God wants us to do. We're not going to worry about what, what people are going to say or do. You know, we get so hung up on that stuff, we end up doing nothing. He says, don't be afraid of people who can kill you physically. Be afraid of those who can destroy your soul. That's what you've got to be concerned about. Where are you at? That's what he says here in verse uh, 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, fear God rather than men. If we love God more than our own lives, we will become free to be effective disciple makers. You know, I'm going to close with this. Craig Anderson says, where are our wounds? Is there nothing to fight for? How complacent are we about the world's causes, both small and great? Have we accepted with weak resignation that nothing can change and that to try isn't worth the effort? Perhaps the call to comfort rings louder than the call to bear a cross. If the church is the body of Christ, as Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's saying, claims, shouldn't it also have some wounds? Yet too often, churches avoid controversy. A pastor at Midlife once wrote, whenever the Apostle Paul went, there was a riot. Wherever I go, they serve tea. <laughs> Man, what a challenging statement. What is he basically saying? Hey, if they crucified Jesus, what do you think we can expect? You know what the great tragedy is in North America? We have a wrong thinking of Christianity sometimes. You know, when I go teach in India to these students, they know they're going to be persecuted. They know they're going to go out in that culture and they're going to suffer. They know they're going to be beaten. They know it's not going to be easy. As a matter of fact, I was teaching one day and the Holy Spirit prompted me and said, there are students in this room right now that are going to lay down their life for me. That was a very jolting moment. I felt that deep impression in my innermost being. Some of these students are going to die for God's gospel, for the kingdom's sake. And you know what was really sad? Before the next year, when I came back the next year, I actually came early to, to, to actually be a part of that graduating class. Instead of 10 seminarians graduating, there were only nine because one of them 
had gone out and preached the gospel and was martyred. He was killed. That's a, that's a rude awakening. How many here in this room said, you know, I, I don't expect to be killed to share my faith? I mean, how many, how many people in Canada have really laid down their lives to the point where they were martyred just because they were sharing the gospel? But I'll tell you right now, around the world, there are people sharing this gospel in very hostile and difficult situations. And why are they doing it? Because the love of Christ is compelling them, even though they know it may cost them their lives. And we're afraid to say something? In this culture? I think we need to take pause. I think we need to consider. I think we need to reflect. What has it cost me to follow Jesus Christ? The disciples, it cost them their lives. These early disciples, it cost them their lives. So let's stand this morning. And I want to ask a few more questions as we close the service. How many are getting the idea that, you know what, if you think this is a cruise ship, you're in the wrong boat? How many have got that figured out right now? If you think this is the, the carnival cruise ship, sorry. Wrong dock. This is a fishing vessel going out. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's the most dangerous thing in the world. We're going out to fish. Hallelujah. And you know something? We're going to see a harvest. Amen. And we have to begin to pray, begin to believe, and to begin to act on what we believe. True? If we're true Christians. I mean, if you want to just say, I'm a Christian, I I show up at church, I I got my little passport ready to go to heaven, you know, I'm good, I've given my life to Jesus. I'm telling you, it's more than that. You know, the government can issue a passport and you never use the thing. We're going to use it. We're going fishing. And I'm, I'm believing that we're going to do this together. So don't freak out. Oh, pastor, I don't know what to do. It's my, my job and other pastors, staff's job to train you. We have people to train you in this church, but we're all going to do it. We're all going to go out there. And you know, sometimes, you know, the person on the fishing vessel, they're the cook on the vessel. Great. How many know they're helping bring in the catch? We all have a part to play. Okay? So I'm not asking you to do something that's outside of who you are as your as a person. Look through that booklet again, that little pamphlet. There's a place for you to plug in. There's a place for you to serve. There's a way for you to contribute. But don't just sit on the sidelines. You want to get an exciting Christian life? Begin to participate with God. When he called you, it wasn't just for you to be a disciple. He said, come, follow me, and I'm going to make you a fisherman. I'm going to, you're going to be a disciple maker. And how many here say, Pastor, you know what? I'm up for it this year. I'm going for it. I'm going to get radical with Jesus this year. I'm going to just follow him wherever he takes me. I'm going to do his agenda this year. I'm going to live out his purpose this year for my life. Because that's what I want to do in my life, and that's what I want our church to do. 
But I can only do that if you join me. How many say, Pastor, we're on board the fishing vessel. We're going fishing. We're going to bring in this harvest. Regardless. Okay, some of you. What are the rest of you going to do? You're going to talk to me about what's going on in the banquet room? You know, what port of stops? Are we going to see what sightseeing? See, see what I'm telling you? We have to think differently. We're fishing, folks. So you're going to get frustrated with me because I'm going to call all hands to deck. I'm going to say, hey, guys, the fish are, are swimming now. We're dropping the nets. We're going for it. We need every hand to pull up this catch. We need you to help disciple these brand new Christians. And we need you to be involved. So, Father, I pray that you'll put it in our hearts. You'll inspire us. You'll direct us. You will lead us. You will guide us. You will provide for us that your spirit would come or we would see this incredible ingathering of responsive hearts. And, Lord, that we will be faithful to care and to love and to nurture and to teach and to train and disciple people that come. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.